Thank you for joining us for this Hagley History Hangout. I am Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. And uh, on these Hagley History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the most innovative research being done using the Hagley Library collections, uh, especially by scholars supported by Hagley Center research grants and fellowships. And one such scholar is joining me today, Roger Bailey, PhD candidate in history at the University of Maryland, whose dissertation is called A Crisis of Identity, Sectionalism and the United States Navy Officer Corps, 1815 to 1861, for which Bailey has received a Henry Bellin DuPont dissertation fellowship from the Hagley Center. And um, in general, uh, Bailey's project addresses how naval officers' regional identities and their beliefs about race, slavery, and territorial expansion affected their command decisions. And Roger, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, uh, absolutely. Let's uh, start. Would you maybe introduce us to your project? Uh, what is it that you're researching? Yeah, so uh, you said it in a nutshell, but basically I'm studying officers' attitudes about race uh, and slavery and, and tension between the North and South um, and, and mm -hmm. some related topics like uh, territorial expansion. And then I'm looking at how that affected uh, what naval officers did as commanders um, and sort of agents of foreign policy and public figures um, in the years leading up to the Civil War. So the, the Navy, um, you know, in this time, there aren't telegraphs or phones or radios. So individual naval officers had a lot of control over how U.S. foreign policy was implemented. Mm. Um, and it was a time period when not a lot of folks were traveling and officers liked to, to, to travel and write about their, their travels. And so uh, they also sort of become public figures uh, with like mm. a lot of publications and things like that. Mm. And so they're, they're uh, surprisingly, they're, they're more influential than you might think at realizing these policies that are thought up in, in Congress and elsewhere and then in the presidency. Um, they, they're sort of playing prominent roles in actually implementing them and pitching them to the public and, and uh, allowing them to be reflected in the public perception of America. Hmm. And what collections in the Hagley Library have you uh, looked at to help you tell the story? Yeah, so the uh, mostly just one, because a lot of the collections at Hagley are obviously uh, tend to be a lot of 20th century and business and uh, stuff like mm -hmm. that. But uh, mm -hmm. Hagley also has the uh, Samuel Francis DuPont papers Mm -hmm, uh, absolutely. which belonged to, uh, I mean, in my period, he, he was not yet an admiral, but he would eventually become Admiral Samuel Francis DuPont, who, uh, you know, was a very notable Civil War naval commander, has a circle named after him in Washington, D.C. and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and he was very popular among other naval officers. Like, he, he just had a lot of friends that he, he wrote to a lot mm -hmm. um, and has a very intact collection, which uh, is has been thoroughly indexed and everything. So it's a really great way uh, to get a, like a candid look at naval officers' attitudes about mm. these questions of uh, race and, and about how their actions were affecting the, these debates and sectionalism and things like that. I wonder how is sectional identity developing in this, what we now refer to as antebellum period, although they wouldn't have known it uh, in that way <laughs> yeah. themselves. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, differently, depending on where you were, especially mm. after 1830s in sort of the broader U.S., 
um, slavery starts becoming more and more divisive. Like up until mm -hmm. that point, a lot of Americans had sort of, um, they assumed it was like, like a, a lot of people who, who even practiced it believed it was like a necessary evil, that it was sort of the foundation for the economy and, and the, the best way to like manage African-Americans, but that ultimately this will go away over time. People will free their slaves. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they looked at slavery going away in the North. They saw that it was starting to decline in the upper South a little bit, at least in terms of like people weren't growing as much um, like slave agriculture was less important in the upper South mm -hmm. over time. And so they thought that slavery was going to go away up until this point in, in a lot of cases. But uh, starting in the 1830s, uh, as cotton becomes much more valuable, slavery becomes a much bigger deal uh, mm -hmm. to the South. And uh, it's, it's rapidly expanding. Um, enslaved African-Americans are, are a much more valuable form of capital if you're a, a Southern, like a wealthy Southerner. Um, and uh, and this causes causes uh, slavery to become an even bigger deal in the South and in the North. There's a response with the expansion of the abolitionist movement, and people start insisting on abolishing slavery immediately. We can't wait for it to go away on its own. We need to totally abolish it now. And this radicalizes as the time goes on. So that, that's sort of the general mm -hmm. <laughs> general public. Uh, but but naval officers are weird and they're kind of insulated because they're not <laughs> like most of them don't own slaves. They don't necessarily have plantations. They're mm -hmm. in a very mixed community. So, you know, mm -hmm. we're not talking about a bunch of New Englanders living new in New England and a bunch of South Carolinians living in South Carolina. Like all these ships have people from all over the country. They're they're away from everyone else in America at sea. And so their their community right. is, uh, you know, this. Uh, composite America mm -hmm. to some extent on the boat um, and then they like they don't necessarily spend a lot of time on shore so they like their social lives are limited to that even when they come back and they marry each other's sisters and stuff um, mm -hmm. and so so it's it's it creates this weird world where um, you have all these ideas sort of blending and, and there's kind of a moderatism that emerges mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. actually keeps the officer corps weirdly uh, like unusually um non-polarized during this time period compared to the way that the rest of the country is is just splitting more and more as uh tensions about mm -hmm. admitting new slave states and stuff like that arise mm -hmm. and perhaps this is uh the the project of the nation building made manifest as uh the officer corps is an organ of the nation that's trying to organize itself yeah um in, in some ways the 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 navy's whole existence its foundation was kind of this nation building project like it mm -hmm. it comes about uh, basically right as we're fighting our first couple wars like right after the rebel the you know the constitution and stuff like that it was like the quasi war with france and the barbary wars and the war of 1812 and the navy plays this big role on like asserting that there's this unified uh you know and and a unified american presence on the world stage and that the country mm -hmm. is capable of like asserting its rights and mm -hmm. so the navy's really fundamental to american nation building and the officers kind of keep that mentality mm -hmm. as time goes on and so um it, it kind of colors everything else that they see and and that's one of the more interesting things as i was doing this research that kind of came out is is how much 
while the rest of the country is is often preoccupied with um, you know the slave power in the north con or in the south controlling everything or you know crazy fanatical abolitionists how you know southerners were thinking of a lot of these northerners mm -hmm. like the officers are often just preoccupied with this external view of the world mm -hmm. um, when they see domestic problems they tend to look for external solutions so they they have mm -hmm. uh, interesting theories about uh, you know using the navy to support commercial or territorial expansion in ways that would diffuse slavery. And they see a lot of domestic problems as being affected by these external issues. And so like when I expected to see officers looking at the Mexican-American war, which you know the, the Navy is involved in fighting in this period, mm -hmm. uh, what I expected to see was, was that these officers would look at this as related to slavery, like many people in the country did. Um, and instead, they're like, they're just preoccupied with Britain. It's all about Anglophobia. And there are people who are like, well, we need to take California so we have ports to, to fight over Oregon with, with Britain and Canada. Or they're like, well, Britain is fomenting this, this problem so that they can, uh, you know, they can take Oregon while we're distracted fighting Mexico. They're, they're like still in this mindset of like, defend America's rights abroad and Britain is the imperial aggressor and we need to, uh, we need to resist Britain. Mm -hmm. The, the geopolitics of independence yeah exactly and, and nation building and eventually uh, by that logic empire building yeah for sure and and it's really fascinating to see these visions of empire that they have and how these problems of slavery fit into them because a lot mm -hmm. of a lot of what they're doing is trying to solve america's internal problems with the way they envision empire and so you see uh, sort of more pro-slavery views of empire. There's a, a guy named Matthew Fontaine Maury, who's pretty, uh, uh, he's very important in oceanography. He sort of founds the field, but he also has, also organizes this expedition to explore the Amazon River Valley in Brazil uh, and gives the, gets one of his uh, close friends and his brother-in-law appointed to it and then gives them secret instructions to see if uh, American slaves could be sent there and American slave colonies could be created in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because he, he, he doesn't think slavery is necessarily going to be stable in the long term in the U.S. And it, one of his, his thoughts is like, well, we can like solve this problem by uh, without making people like Southerners are not going to want to give up their, their wealth and their slaves. And so we can just sort of export this problem to Brazil with colonization. Mm. Um, and on the flip side, you have people who are really involved in the Navy and supporting Liberia, which, of course, is a, a colony created specifically so that African-Americans in the U.S. could be freed and gotten rid of, basically, right. <laughs> uh, because, the you know, a lot of Americans were like, well, we can't free African-Americans because free African-Americans will be destabilizing, they'll be dangerous, we can't give them free full rights. And so a solution to that problem was seen as like, well, we can we can make anti we can spread anti-slavery and, and emancipation by creating this place to send them abroad. And so empire mm. for these naval officers um, is a you know it's about expanding American influence and and improving the country, but but they incorporate this this racial and slavery problem in the country into their visions of empire. Hmm. And in, in general, uh, what is the geography? Um, of this sectionalism, at least as represented by the officer corps. So uh, it's interesting. There are, there are not that many officers from the deep south. Um, mm. There there are more from New England, but actually still like not a ten, like they tend to be sort of mid Atlantic, like the, a significant majority. 
hmm. um, are sort of from Virginia through New York uh, mm-hmm. in that area, uh-huh. mm-hmm. um, and especially kind of Chesapeake. Um, uh, this is where, sort of, uh, you know, uh, Samuel Francis yeah. Dupont sort of comes in. He's in one of these yeah. from Delaware, one, one of these Atlantic officers. Uh, and so a lot of them, w- one of the reasons that the, the culture of the officer corps is sort of like moderate for, for the time period, um, kind of like stays a little bit more ambivalent about whether slavery is good or bad is because a lot of them are from this sort of border state upper South region where slavery exists, they're exposed to it, but it exists in like, it's less, uh, less ex- extreme forms than some of these places like in South Carolina, where you have mm. like African-American majorities of the population and stuff like that. It's, it's like, just, uh, I think it seems less present. And the idea that slavery might decline on its own, it seems more reasonable if you're living in mm. the upper South where slavery is sort of like stagnant a little bit as an institution compared to the, the lower South where cotton is king. Um, so yeah, it's the, the, the breakdown regionally of the officer corps definitely plays a big role in that. Is that um, some sort of intergenerational legacy of uh, deep water commerce or um, a preponderance of um, a tradition of seamanship in the region or what else might explain that? Yeah, it's it's hard to to say exactly. Some of it is is like this is like where the population is densest mm-hmm. to some extent, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's part of it. Some of it is tradition because the way naval appointments work um, it, it changes over time. But there's always a sort of a legacy appointment system, which means mm. that if you had been in the navy, uh, like if your father had been in the navy, it was going to be more easy for you to get into the navy. Um, usually the secretary of the Navy would use, would have like personal appointments that he could use on mm. sort of perpetuating these, these like legacies. Um, and so you have, uh, you have the system that sort of keeps a lot of the power centralized in those regions. Um, and that, that, that's a big part of, of mm. why some of it is, you know, people with maritime backgrounds tended to be more likely to go into the Navy. So places with, with larger shipping industries and stuff were more likely to, uh, to supply Naval officers. Uh, and there's another theory that one scholar has, has posed that makes a little bit of sense to me that mm-hmm. people closer to, especially Washington DC. And so these sort of, some of these mid Atlantic States mm-hmm. felt a stronger connection to the federal government than people who were living on the periphery of the country. And that mm-hmm. might have led more of them to seek, federal appointments. If nothing else, they're more likely to have connections to people who would get them a federal appointment. Um, right. So. Mm-hmm. Now, what was it that you found in um, the Admiral DuPont papers? Uh, there's all sorts of stuff. Uh, it was particularly useful just for getting tons of like little candid, uh, mm-hmm. like snapshots of how they'd feel about whatever happened to be in the news, including some of these <laughs> sectional things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, it was especially useful um, well, the, the most useful by far, I would have to say, is, is the collection's holdings on secession itself when the war is starting to break out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in my dissertation. That's actually sort of a smaller part of it. And I, I plan to, you know, I plan to turn this into a book and that's going to become a whole chapter. But uh, in the dissertation, this is sort of how it concludes. But as mm-hmm. it's concluding, you can sort of see that community I was describing, like how it's fracturing um, by by looking at the way these officers debate things. And DuPont is well positioned as a border state officer, as like, you know, an officer from a slaveholding state, um, like to connect with some of these Southern officers who are, feel really, really torn 
when their states secede. And so it's, it's interesting to see how these officers write to DuPont, their friend, explaining like why they think they need to secede. And, you know, one of them talks, for hmm. example, about, um, you know, the idea that he, you know, his, his membership in the union is contingent on the state's membership in the union and how can he, you know, people, a lot of people like don't understand how they could be expected to, to be in the Navy and fight against their own state. Um, and there are all sorts of different arguments among people who often were like opposed to secession, but when it happens, feel like their hand is sort of forced and they have to secede. And then uh, in the papers, you get the opportunity to watch DuPont, who is a pretty staunch unionist, uh, like push back against these arguments. And mm. he, one of his friends, he, he basically just talks him down for like the friend is like, if South Carolina leaves, like once that's a done deal, like, you know, in the meantime, yeah, maybe we could talk about treason and whatever. But like one, once that's settled, once South Carolina exists as a separate state, like that's my home, I have to go there. And, uh, and, and DuPont like talks him down and is like, you know, no, you had a, you took an oath to the union and, uh, you know, like brings up arguments like this, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, convinces him not to. And then the two of them sort of gang up on the senior captain in the Navy, who is also a South Carolinian and they mm -hmm. talk him down from this when he, you know, and he had been very sad on this too. He had, you know, it's, you could read his, his arguments that there's all this precedent for like, you know, it's normal for naval officers to resign and once they resign they're allowed to take commissions in foreign navies and like um all, all these arguments but like you could sort of see the peer pressure at work um and the the way that that discourse played out and and shaped it and you can understand then why southern like a south carolinian officer who did not have a staunch unionist friend in the same way that that this particular officer had dupont might have gone through with it then um, mm. And it, it helps explain the problem why a lot of officers were less, even if they were pro-South, like they were less excited about slavery than a lot of their Southern peers and yet seceded. And it's like, well, why is this happening? And some of it is just the nature of the communities that they're in. And, and mm. you know, when it comes down to it, we're like social creatures and like <laughs> what our friends doing, like has a big impact on what we do. Mm. Mm -hmm. And certainly defining what we consider possible yeah. More desirable. Um, because attitudes toward race are a part of your project, it has me wondering, um, were there Black or African-American officers or sailors uh, in uh, so the United States Navy? No, no officers at all. Uh, no, mm. um, it, there were, um, there weren't, there was basically no non-white officers. There were um, like, there, there are cases of a few like uh, Jewish officers who at the time like experienced a lot of racism, mm -hmm. um, but uh, it, the officer corps was very strictly white. It was very mm -hmm. much middle or upper class. Um, the Navy itself is a little bit more complicated. Uh, it, in general, for this period, they had a ban on recruiting normal black sailors into the Navy. Um, but the Navy, like the, 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 sailing community had always had a long history of actually a disproportionate number of African-American sailors mm -hmm. because it gave them better opportunities usually than were available on land. And mm -hmm. the strict hierarchy of ships could actually affect to give them like a type of equality, right? Like if you were a sailor, a black sailor serving alongside white sailors, like the, the most important hierarchy is like officers and sailors and the racial hierarchy is actually secondary. So mm -hmm. it, in some cases it could, it could give them opportunities and could be a little bit, a little bit more merit, meritocratic. Um, so because of this, it, it wasn't unusual to have 
black sailors and the early Navy had done this a lot. And, mm -hmm. and so, and sometimes like ships, you just like, you needed sailors. Like you, you can't go anywhere if you don't have enough people to work the sails. And so um, subject to the needs of the service, it wasn't that uncommon to recruit, uh, to recruit black sailors when when there was a need. And in like the War of 1812, this happens a lot. Um, it's much less common in the antebellum era, but is known to happen occasionally. Um, and then African-Americans were, were recruited in certain capacities as uh, like stewards, um, cooks and things like that, uh, in, usually in sort of a servant role. There are, there are certain instances of officers bringing uh, enslaved servants with them aboard mm. ships because uh, officers were allowed like personal uh, servants mm. or like ballots or whatever. Mm. Um, and so sometimes they would, they would bring like, if, if you were from the South and you might've owned uh, a slave, you might, you might bring him with you um, and uh, have him be, you know, accompany you as sort of a manservant on the cruise. So it, there were African-Americans on these ships, uh, but in kind of limited capacities generally. Um, that also changed a little bit depending on where you were. So on the African coast, uh, ships would bring on whole contingents um, of what were called crewmen, usually spelled K-R-U, um, <laughs> from the crew people. But the name that name comes from the fact that they had this like long history going back decades or maybe centuries of uh, uh, this is like a, a people in, in West Africa who had a long tradition of serving with uh, different merchant ships that would come to the area hmm. and act pilots or supplementary crewmen or whatever. And so, yeah, the Navy ships would have these like uh, native African contingents aboard that would do certain things because it was seen as too dangerous for white people to go uh, ashore in the climate of Africa because they didn't really understand how malaria and disease worked. Mm. And so to avoid exposure, you'd have these like supplementary black crews aboard your ships. And so it's, it is very interesting watching how these shipboard dynamics play out. I My research for this has focused in particular on the foreign policy aspects uh, of what the Navy is doing and, and domestic discourse. So I, I don't do as much research on this in the dissertation itself, although I'm planning on expanding to incorporate it a little bit because it, it kind of reveals attitudes about race and how officers sometimes, especially if you were a slave owning officer, you might bring some of your slave owning mindset to the way you managed sailors in general, but especially mm. black sailors. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, could you press uh, give give an example? Oh well, uh, just so uh, one one example would be um, officers having to uh, manage, like if when when a naval ship off the African coast uh, stopped a slave trader. Um, one of the there there are a few main areas that my dissertation focuses on. One of them is uh, policing of the slave trade, like the navy's mm. policing of the slave trade. Um, helping found Liberia, fighting the Mexican-American War, um, and stopping pro-slavery invasions of Latin America. So, so from the slave trade chapter, um, you know, officers would sometimes capture loaded, naval ships would capture a loaded slave ship sometimes. And you, you have this problem of like, you have all of these captives who uh, are crammed very, very tightly in these terrible conditions. Um, but you're like often like at sea, like you can't exactly release them uh, and you have to manage all of these people who are often starving, dying of thirst, in, in like living in just the most horrific conditions possible and don't want to be there. But you have to be able to manage that ship and keep order enough to get it to port. Um, and so there, there are cases of officers 
who, um, you know, like sometimes came, like grew up on a plantation or something like that. And so they take to managing these captains, these captives mm. as though they were slaves, basically. And so you have this weird situation of officers liberating uh, liberating mm. these captives, but but still sort of enslaving them because there's not, you, you know, like there's not a lot, uh, there's not a lot else you can do, but, but like drawing on techniques for managing these uh, masses of people, including things like um, whippings and stuff like that to try to keep them in order. Mm. Um, so yeah, definitely you see, um, you know, there's cases where you, you can see clear racism in managing black, like an officer managing his own black sailors and things like that, mm. if they have you know, black sailors around. So you can, you can definitely see their lives ashore and their opinions on race and slavery bleeding into their professional duties. Were there any documents uh, at Hagley that really surprised or excited you? <laughs> the the ones on the uh, the uh, secession were pretty exciting, but um, for me, anyways, <laughs> the average person <laughs> might just be like a bunch of old white guys <laughs> uh, debating kind of tired topics. But um, yeah, one of the things that that interested me most was finding uh, a few transcribed letters from Dupont's father to him when he was a midshipman. Um, so, you know, he, we're talking about, uh, I believe he was like 20 at the time, maybe 19, like a t uh, basically a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it, it just presents a really interesting, I want to say these are from 1820 or so, maybe 1821, 22. It presents a really interesting, uh, glimpse of what it would like to be a midshipman at that time and how some of these values that I study could be reinforced at an early age. So hmm. uh, one case was like his father, DuPont was out um, on a ship patrolling the African coast. So looking, looking for slavers. Uh, actually, I believe his ship was commanded by Matthew Perry, I wanna say the same Matthew Perry who later goes on to open, open Japan to Western trade. But, um, Anyway, so he's on this ship and his father was like writing him saying like, well, we'd really we'd really hope that you caught a slave, uh, a slave ship or two out there because like we'd like them to make you a prize master to basically put you in command of that ship and sail it home so it could be adjudicated because that would mean, you know, one, you'd get the prestige of having commanded a vessel, but, but more importantly, like we'd get to see you again because we miss you. Um, and, but, but then they're like, actually, we, when we saw the news recently, we didn't because this other naval commander who was out there had just like captured a bunch of ships that weren't technically, uh, weren't technically American, they were French. And that's pretty illegal. <laughs> and he like tried to send these home for adjudication and it created this whole scandal. Um, and his father, you know, talks about this, this officer saying, you know, he would have clearly, he would have caught the devil if he'd, if he'd uh, encountered him at sea, like captured the devil because he's just capturing everyone. Um, and like, we're really glad actually that, that like you haven't been out like on that cruise making these captures, it turns out because, you know, we, we don't want you taking on all this uh, negative press and, and the, the dangers that, that turned out to be involved in that whole affair. And it, it gave an opportunity to kind of see how this young officer was being shaped and molded. Like he was, uh, you, you could see the inducements to capturing slave ships being offered there. Like, hey, there's prestige, you get to go home. Everyone, no one liked being stationed on the coast of Africa because you weren't even allowed to go ashore because of disease and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, so you can see these inducements, but you can also see like, you're not actually going to get much support. It turns out if you do, we're kind of glad that you're not capturing ships because like 
this person caught the wrong ships and it created mm. a scandal. The Navy didn't support him and he got all this, this negative press. And that winds up shaping the Navy going forward. The Navy is not mm. effective at policing the slave trade. They capture, mm. I, I want to say it's maybe three ships a year on average at, at some points, often much less. Mm -hmm. And the Royal Navy, by contrast, is patrolling for slave traders and, and catching thousands. Um, so not per year, but like over, over the span, yeah. <laughs> the span of, of the slave trade suppression efforts. So like the U.S. Navy is not good at this. And, and one of my questions is like, why is the Navy failing at catching slave traders? Is it because mm -hmm. officers are sympathetic to the slave trade? And you can kind of see there, you know, one snapshot of how officers thought about it, which is like, mm -hmm. there's these inducements when you capture them, but like, ultimately there are risks involved. And, mm -hmm. and backing that up with more research, I've learned that naval officers often didn't catch, capture slave ships that they could have because there were, there were risks, there were legal liabilities mm -hmm. and diplomatic consequences if they were, if they weren't a hundred percent sure that they had jurisdiction to take that ship. And, and because they didn't necessarily receive a lot of support or guidance or, uh, you know, indemnification from being sued in some cases, which could happen <laughs> to officers, they just wouldn't. And um, yeah, so it's, it, it's tidbits like that can be really informative <laughs> and kind of interesting just to see like, like what, what different, <laughs> how, how different was the life of this 20 year old than my life was for <laughs> my, my biggest problem was, you know, like, am I going to take an 8am class or is that too early to wake up? <laughs> right. Well, are there any implications um, for perhaps today from your work? I think about how the personal politics and identity of um, federal officers invested with authority at various levels of government can, um, you know, play a prominent role in dictating their behavior, um, their exercise of that power, and not always necessarily a very positive role. Yeah, um, I had, I'd started this project expecting to, to find a lot of bias in, in mm. the Navy, uh, a lot of sectional bias. Um, in this time period that was one of the only time periods that was clearly more divisive than our current period. Right? I mean, they, not the whole antebellum era, but by the mm -hmm. end of this, you know, <laughs> then there's an actual war. It's like, okay, this is, yes. this is more divisive than what we're dealing with now. Um, so uh, yeah, I had expected to find a lot more bias, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it sort of highlights the fact that when you have these organizations that are kind of these blended communities, as you often see, not always, but often see in the government, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it emphasizes how much that can kind of moderate those <laughs> sorts of things. Uh, it emphasize this study also sort of emphasizes the, the way that having that sort of professional and institutional mindset, like a lot of these Naval officers, they're preoccupied with the global struggle because they have this professional mindset of like, mm -hmm. the Navy is about this kind of mission. I need to focus on my country being able to deal with this, this mission, often to the point of tunnel vision, to the point where they, they miss things that really have important domestic implications, but they're so focused externally. Um, it, it sort of emphasizes, I think, um, how much the study emphasizes, <laughs> like the, the way that like professionalism actually can be kind of resilient and hmm. counterbalance a lot of, a lot of those kinds of uh, partisan pressures. 
Um, but it also, it, it reminds us that, that those, that in institutional inertia and those forces pulling you together are not uh, impervious to damage. They tear mm. over time. And by the time the Civil War has, has come about, they, they really do tear mm. often just irreconcilably. And, and there's only so much that a guy like DuPont can do to keep mm. everyone on board and keep them faithfully pursuing, you know, their constitutional oath. Um, so it's sort of a cautionary tale as well. It's hopeful, but but we should be careful as we, mm. we think about keeping the country and the government unified and, and on, mm -hmm. on track to be professional. And, and such, is, such are the lessons of history. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. uh, Roger, uh, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> uh, what a great project. And uh, for the audience, if you'd like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Please don't be a stranger. <laughs>